Progressive Rugby League. Hello again, good to see you. For me, John O'Duncan, there are roughly three tiers of comprehension. There are some topics I know quite a bit about and feel comfortable discussing. There are some topics I'm a bit scratchy on, but know enough to fake it. While there are some topics where I just have to throw my hands up in the air and say, help me. Today's topic is Queensland. And as I welcome you to another edition of the PRL Book Club, I have a little confession. Before I read the book, Heartland, How Rugby League Explains Queensland, which is the focus of today's episode, I honestly thought I knew heaps about Queensland. I mean... I'm from Sydney, for goodness sakes. No one knows Queensland like a born and bred Sydney cider who has visited the Sunshine State no less than twice in his lifetime, including once for schoolies. Soon after I started reading Heartland, though, reality struck. I quickly realised I was, in fact, at the help-me tier of comprehension and that I was just another Sydney-centric know-it-all who thought the history of Australian rugby league belonged squarely and solely to Sydney and New South Wales and that Queensland was a state that could fit comfortably inside a simple cliché or two. So while it was confronting to have my preconceptions upended, it was indeed a worthwhile exercise. Heartland is a brilliant account of the evolution of Queensland since the 70s and how rugby league has both reflected a changing society and helped to shape it. People like to generalise about Queensland, I've been guilty, but reading Heartland gently reminds us anecdote by anecdote, interview by interview, that it is of course a complex, diverse, ever-evolving place and that for every Queensland cliché, there are countless living, breathing examples to contradict them. So to help slow my spinning head and to delve into what really makes Queensland tick is the author of Heartland, How Rugby League Explains Queensland, Joe Gorman. Joe, thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks for having me, and that was an awesome introduction. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to have you on, Joe. <laughs> now, I want to start off by asking you, what made you want to write Heartland? What gaps were you trying to fill here? Okay, yeah, so look, I was... I'm fascinated by the concepts and I think the enduring appeal of State of Origin. Mm-hmm. So it's a series that just has this ability to just regenerate itself time and time again. There's been several times where people think, oh, it's going to die out naturally, especially throughout the 1990s and 2000s, and it just keeps regenerating itself. Mm-hmm. And my thesis going into this book was that I believe that Queensland has kept it going. Basically, the Queensland spirit, if you want to call it that, has kept the series alive and given it meaning. It's this commercial juggernaut with soul. That's what State of Origin is. It's both the commercial driver of the game, but it's also brought deep meaning to rugby league, I think, as well, at a time when perhaps some of the tribalism and the passion of the traditional rugby league world was, you know, wrecked by the Super League war and so forth. So... There was just sort of a general fascination with State of Origin as a concept and as a series. But then on a kind of deeper level, you know, I grew up in New South Wales. I grew up in the Blue Mountains, but I was born in Brisbane, mm-hmm. you know, born in the front room of an old Queenslander house to a Queensland family from dad's family from the south, mum's family from the north. Mm-hmm. We moved to New South Wales when I was a kid. So I kind of grew up in a Queensland household in New South Wales yeah. and that might sound a little bit funny and I guess you might compare it to the experience of like perhaps like an ethnic community, you know, being rooted somewhere else but then having all your, your stories and your history at a kind of like a homeland. So, yeah. you know, just growing up, you know, my stories that I was told by my father and my mum all related back to Queensland. Mm-hmm. Some of the vernacular we used was still very much based around Queensland vernacular. Did you, you know, say so Bevan instead of Bogan? 
<laughs> no, we didn't say that, but we said things like, pass me the Refidex. Now, you probably have no idea what a Refidex is, but it's a Queensland street directory. Oh, right. Like, yeah, and it's just like little things like that, and that, that's kind of a um, – it doesn't really mean anything, but it just shows you, I guess, mm. how my upbringing was very much in two worlds in that, you know, we live in New South Wales, but we all, me, my brother, my mum and my dad, we all felt like Queenslanders. We visited Queensland every other school holidays to visit family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we looked out for Queensland sport. So me and dad would always look out for Queensland sports people. And the most visceral experience of that was really state of origin and during the 90s, particularly the Brisbane Broncos. Mm-hmm. So I had this kind of deeper fascination with what it meant to be a Queenslander and how that was expressed through rugby league. So that was the gap I was looking to fill is, mm. is how does this idea of the Queensland spirit regenerate itself through the decades? Mm. And Joe, from your experience on both sides of the border, what do Sydney siders like me get most often wrong about Queensland? That's a good question. I think uh, as a general rule, and obviously there are exceptions to this, but I think the biggest thing is that people from New South Wales and people from Sydney in particular just do not have any respect or understanding for the history of rugby league in Queensland. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that basically rugby league is a Sydney thing Mm -hmm. and then, oh, yeah, we invited the Broncos in and, oh, yeah, there was State of Origin in 1980. That's when it all started for them. There's very little understanding or respect for the old clubs of the Brisbane Rugby League competition, which is, you know, just as old as any of the clubs in Sydney. Mm-hmm. There's no respect at all. It barely, uh, no one knows about the Foley Shield, which was the town versus town tournament in North Queensland. Mm-hmm. And look, in some ways, nor should there be. But at the same time, people know a lot about the glory days of Sydney Rugby League, right? Mm. And there's a kind of basic lack of respect, I think, for the history of where Queensland has come from in Rugby League. Mm-hmm. So... A good example of this is like if you look at Wally Lewis's stats, the official stats do not count his winner Manly games. Mm. They don't count the Valleys games that he played. You know, Mal basically, you know, according to the official stats, starts his career at Canberra Raiders. Mm. Well, that's a that's ridiculous, right? Yeah. And maybe these are small things. Maybe these don't matter. But try telling someone who played for the Newtown Jets. Mm-hmm that, oh, those games don't count anymore because that club doesn't exist in the, the current NRL. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like Sydney has rolled over its stats from, from 1908 mm. into the current competition. But, oh, yeah, no, Queensland, it just started with 1988 with the Broncos. Yeah. And I think that's a good example of where there's just this basic lack of understanding of where Queensland has come from, the stories and the rich histories that feed into what is this kind of ongoing Queensland phenomenon at a state of origin level. You know, that's all part of it. And I think Queenslanders have a sense of that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that your average 25-year-old Queenslander knows about every little season of the BRL or whatever, but mm. they have a sense of where they've come from, whereas New South Wales just has no clue whatsoever and, and no real sense of respecting any of it. It still feels, I think, to many Queenslanders like New South Wales tolerate and Sydney people tolerate the existence of the Cowboys and the Broncos and the Gold Coast. But, you know, if they really had their way, they'd bring back North Sydney Bears and screw Queensland. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like this idea that, that Queensland is just like these interlopers in this competition, but really it's all about Sydney. It's a little bit similar, I guess, to how Victorians are so myopic when it comes to the AFL. Sure. You know, it's all about Victoria. I yeah. think there's a similar relationship between Sydney and, and Queensland. Yeah, I think reading the book for me personally, Joe, I was confronted by my own preconceptions and how biased I have been. And I think back to shows we have done in the past when we were doing the sort of panel style show and think, oh, gee whiz, Brisbaneites listening to that show 
even though we weren't trying to be Sydney centric, we were inevitably extremely Sydney centric. So yeah, it, it was a great exercise to to go through the book and sort of have a look in the mirror about how my biases were were projecting onto what we were putting out. Anyway, book sure. showing. But then again, that's not necessarily an individual fault, right? You know, that's what you've been brought up with the structure of the the NRL as it exists. Mm. And the stories that are told to you and, and you know what I mean? It's a general structural problem that I think Queenslanders face. And yeah. this is what allows that chip on the shoulder to maintain all these years later, even though the Broncos have won one of the most Enough. successful clubs <laughs> in rugby league history. They've, there's no, sort of no reason to have a feeling that there's a chip on the shoulder anymore. Mm. And yet there still is. And I think in part it comes from that feeling of you guys just still don't really respect the history of this place and, yeah. and the, the ongoing traditions of this place. All right, well, Joe, let's get to the book, shall we? So the 1980s, they were bookended by events that turned out to have a monumental impact, not only on Queensland, but more broadly on rugby league and Australian sport. We mentioned them just now. We're talking about the emergence of State of Origin in 1980 and the birth of the Brisbane Broncos in 1988. So let's concentrate on State of Origin for a moment. What were both the social and rugby league circumstances of the late 70s that made State of Origin's entry onto the Australian sporting landscape so timely? Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, at the one level, there was just a real need to regenerate the old interstate series between Queensland and New South Wales. So from a very narrow rugby league perspective, Queensland had basically been smashed throughout the 1970s, Mm. could barely win a game, partly because many New South Wales teams during that era had players like Artie Beetson or Kerry Bosted or John Rebo or Queensland-born players that pulled on the blue jumper and, and actually beat their home state, right? Mm. So there was this need to regenerate the, the whole eligibility criteria for Queensland and New South Wales. So on a, from a very simple basis, the conditions were good there. But what my book looks at is the kind of broader social conditions at the time. Mm. So during the 1970s, well, actually from the late 60s through to the late 80s, Queensland was ruled by an ultra-conservative right-wing premier, Joe Bjorki Peterson. Many of your listeners will be familiar with mm. this bloke. Joe for PM. And yeah, exactly. The hillbilly dictator, as they called him. He was, for people that don't understand, a little bit in some ways like a Trump figure in, in some ways mm. in that he, he treated the press with total disdain. He attempted to rule wherever he could with absolute you know, authoritarian streak. His base was in the rural areas mm. of the state and a real prick of a bloke if you ask me but a lot of people in Queensland loved him at the time he was a, mm. a real law and order sort of premier you know the buses ran on time and so forth so you know funnily enough that's one of the reasons why my parents left Queensland was because of the Bjorki Peterson right. government because they couldn't stand him like my family's always been on the left or the far left of politics so mm. that drove us in some ways out of Queensland but look Bjorki Peterson was very parochial about Queensland so During the 1970s, he started even talking about things like seceding from the rest of Australia. Now, that was never really seriously considered, but he did talk openly about it, right? And he was always ready to stick the boot into New South Wales and Sydney in particular. He was always ready to stick the boot into Canberra. There was this feeling that Bjorki Peterson propagated that basically Southerners were getting fat off Queensland generated wealth, mm-hmm. right? Now, the truth of that is immaterial. That's the, the atmosphere of parochialism that was created during the time. Mm. There's a great quote which I put in the book where he talks to a Japanese trade mission. I think it was about 1977. And he said, don't think of us as Australians. We are Queenslanders. So there was this real feel that like Queensland was different to the rest of the nation, especially from New South Wales. So there was this atmosphere of parochialism which rugby league tapped into that was happening at a broader social level. Another really big impact was 
was that Joby Occupatus and outlawed poker machines. Mm-hmm. New South Wales legalised poker machines in the 1950s and that allowed the, the Lees clubs that were attached to the football clubs in Sydney to recruit players from interstate and from Queensland. So they just had more money to recruit the players. So that created a massive imbalance between the New South Wales Rugby League and the Brisbane Rugby League competitions. Yeah. And, okay, so that means you might have three or four Queenslanders pulling on a blue jumper during the 1970s and actually beating their home state Mm. because of where they live, not where they were born. So the social and the political context of the 70s really does feed into what happened in the 1980s with State of Origin and the birth of State of Origin, both at an indirect and a a very direct level. Mm. But we can't underestimate just that kind of atmosphere of parochialism that was generated during the Bjorki Peterson era. You know, Queenslanders felt hard done by, both in politics, in society, but especially in football. Yeah. It's interesting you make that United States comparison. Reading your book, I started to think of the similarities between Queensland and the United States. And I don't want Queenslanders to take this as a swipe. I'm not talking specifically about Donald Trump's America. I'm thinking more broadly, you know, a big, expansive landmass, extremely diverse contradictions, something for everyone, a hint of exceptionalism and damn good at sport. Mm, yeah. yeah, so that, just, that struck me as I read it as well. They often call it the Deep North, don't they? And that's a direct yeah. reference to the Deep South. Yeah, so, right, yeah. okay. Yeah. So back to State of Origin, though. The Queensland State of Origin team is an incredible sporting brand, and I try to avoid using the word brand, but I think it's an appropriate word for this question because marketers can only drive a brand so far. For a brand to really seep into the consciousness for so long, there has to be a fundamental truth to it. So, Joe, what do you think makes the Queensland State of Origin brand so strong that it not only unites a disparate state, but it also attracts many other followers, including many from New South Wales? I think we Sydney siders all know someone who inexplicably supports yeah. Queensland. <laughs> yeah, and I get accused of that all the time. <laughs> people always think I'm one of those people who's decided to turn their back on New South Wales, and you yeah. know, I've always sort of pointed out, well, State of Origin, and I was born in Brisbane, so... Yeah. But there are many who, who are born and bred in Sydney who just decide to go for Queensland. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've got a friend that absolutely does the same thing. Look, I think brand, like I hate speaking about brands yeah. and I hate speaking in that kind of way, but I understand what you're talking about. And a brand, it needs authenticity, right? Mm. It needs to be trading upon something that's real. Mm-hmm. And I think this sense of Queensland being Queensland, not just Brisbane or not just the Gold Coast or not just one particular part of the state. There is a deep-lying sense of Queensland as a unified place. Now, there's obviously big moments of division within Queensland, particularly between the North and the South. Mm -hmm. But look, for example, at the universities, right? It's the Mm -hmm. University of Melbourne. It's the University of Sydney. And then it's the University of Queensland. Those are the three Mm -hmm. sandstone universities. What's the difference there? Well, Queensland is is not called the University of Brisbane. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff in Queensland where the naming conventions don't relate to the capital city, they relate to the entire state. Mm -hmm. So my point being here is that there is a sense of Queensland being this place, Mm -hmm. whereas, as I said, I grew up in New South Wales, I've lived most of my life there, and I don't get a sense of New South Wales. Mm. You know, you're either in Sydney or you're camping out. That's basically the understanding, and that, that is absolutely expressed through rugby league as well. You know, Sydney dominates over the rest of the state completely. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, this idea of, the, of New South Wales as a brand is just, it's rubbish, right? And <laughs> I think Brad Fittler's doing a pretty good job, actually, of not just because he's winning, but I think someone like him can actually help to sort of regenerate that brand. Mm. But it... <laughs> It doesn't have the same appeal as Balmain. It doesn't mm. have the same appeal as even like a Newtown. You know, just people just don't have that sense of New South Wales 
in New South Wales. Yeah. They, they have a sense of Sydney or they have a sense of the regional town they're from. Yeah. But I don't get a sense that there's that kind of same feeling. So Queensland, the brand has meaning, I, I believe, and it's not just about football, it's about something broader. Yeah. But then on top of that, Queensland's got a fantastic tradition of being remarkably inclusive. And I'm not just talking about in terms of, you know, blackfellas, whitefellas, I'm talking about the spread of the players, where they come from. They come from little towns. They always mm. have come from little towns. And there's a feeling, I guess, that in Queensland, politics, economics and rugby league is all driven just as much by the regions as it is by the capital city. Mm. And I think that really helps to sustain this sense of what it means to be a Queenslander and how that's expressed through the Maroons and through State of Origin. Yeah, and I tend to think, obviously, Queensland had that long period of dominance through the 2000s, and I wonder if New South Wales had that era of dominance, what would happen to State of Origin? The fact that Queensland is Queensland and it has that kind of mythical appeal, people Mm -hmm. just couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, I remember at the turn of the century, I think New South Wales won three series in a row or around there. That's right. People were thinking this could be the end. Queensland is just going to fall away. But when Queensland was winning eight in a row, it was just getting bigger and bigger. Well, here's the thing, right? So that's an absolutely perfect example in that New South Wales won three series in a row. I think it was 2003. Yeah, to 2005. That's right. 2005. And then the streak of Queensland started in 2006. Mm. Now, during that time, by 2005, people were just openly talking about the fact that we don't need State of Origin anymore. It's it's used by date, whatever, pack it all up, it's going to die, the series is not important. Mm. And then also what happened was a young Aboriginal man from the north coast of New South Wales, Greg Inglis, mm. decides, I don't want to play for that winning team that's just won the last three State of Origins in a row. I want to play for Queensland. Mm. Like, people in Sydney and in New South Wales always make fun of this, right? They always look at this as some sort of this farce because, mm. you know, obviously Greg Inglis was born in New South Wales and only spent a couple of years as a teenager in Brisbane. Mm. But I think if you look at it from the other direction is that basically Greg Inglis turned his back on New South Wales when they're at their highest point. Right? Mm. Like, they're completely dominant. They're the dominant team. That's where he's from, apparently, mm. you know, and he wants to play for the losing team. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a moment. Think yeah. about the, the meanings that behind that. It's like he is connecting to something higher with Queensland, right? Yeah. We can all laugh about it and joke about it and so forth, but that is literally true. When he said it himself in interviews, he said, I felt a sense of family and a sense of belonging. Mm. I spent time in Queensland playing rugby league and feel that in New South Wales. Yeah, so. and we'll get to this a bit more later, but also the sure. race side of things, how Queenslanders have welcomed Indigenous players and promoted them much better than New South Wales. That I'm sure that played a role too. So we'll get to that a bit more later. But Absolutely. let's get to the other bookend of the 80s, and that is, of course, the, the Brisbane Broncos. Can you give us a sense of what was happening in Queensland society and politics in the late 80s that paved the way for a club like the Brisbane Broncos to appear and make the mark that they did. Yeah, okay. So socially and politically, you know, there was a pretty turbulent time for Queensland in that the Bjorki-Peterson government lost power. So Mm. the Labor government of Wayne Goss came in and there was a kind of cultural shift Mm. in Brisbane and in Queensland generally. Culturally, it became a much more open place the political and exiles, if you want to call them that, started returning to Queensland, you know, creative people and so forth. Mm. There was a sense of like a new Queensland, if you like. 
And what I looked at in the book was the way in which the downfall of the Bjorki Peterson government pretty much perfectly coincided with the downfall of the old style of rugby league in Queensland. Mm. So with the collapse of the BRL and really the you know the end of the Foley Shield as a really good competition up north. Mm. So there was this sense that of a reawakening and a rebirth of Queensland. It was probably led by Brisbane at that time. Mm. And so the conditions were really perfect for a team like the Broncos to come in. The Broncos were absolute disruptors. They came in with totally new ideas on how a football club should be run. Mm-hmm. They were brash. They were quite arrogant. They had a bit of cash. They sort of, in many ways, like I'm not saying this was a deliberate correlation. There wasn't like a sense that the two were working hand in hand, but Mm. the Broncos were a symbol of a changing Brisbane, Mm. right, and a changing Queensland. So during the 80s, there was three major events that kind of fed into a sense of self-confidence. One was the State of Origin contest, which obviously begun in 1980. Then there was the Commonwealth Games held in Brisbane in 1982, which was a, Mm. a raging success. And then in 1988, the World Expo came mm. to Brisbane and that was is still seen by most Queenslanders, especially people from Brisbane, as a major turning point in the history of the state. You know, Queensland came of age, Brisbane come of age at, at World Expo 88. Well, the Broncos launched around the same time and they were connected to Expo. You know, I think they even had some events at, at Expo mm. from memory from what Barry Morant just told me. So there was a sense that Broncos had come along at just the right time. The rugby league scene was pretty rubbish at the time. Like, you know, this annual exodus of players from the Brisbane clubs to Sydney because the Brisbane clubs had no money. Most of the Brisbane clubs were broke. You know, players like Wally Lewis weren't getting paid by Wynnum because they were just, you know, flat broke. And you had clubs with great traditions that were just going under, essentially. Mm. So there was an understanding that something needed to change. There needed to be some relationship. This was the era of the VFL becoming the AFL. Mm You know, the Brisbane Bullets started in the NBL. So there was this kind of like general move towards national competition. So I think people understood in Brisbane at the time that we need to have some sort of involvement in the Sydney competition. Yeah. And what I also like to sort of look at is, you know, people, they look at this kind of idea of like the one team town, which was really revolutionary the way the Broncos did it. And there is an idea of like, obviously there's rivalries within Brisbane, north and south, and there's rivalries between the clubs. Mm. But one of the things is that, you know, the Brisbane City Council is like the biggest council in, I think, in the Southern Hemisphere, right? It's certainly the biggest in Australia. Mm. And it basically, it is the entire city. So there's this idea of Brisbane as this one entity. So the Broncos come along and it kind of fits in with the general political and and cultural ethos of the place in many ways. People are prepared to support something called Brisbane Mm. in a way that Sydney people would not have been prepared to give up on their traditional clubs and just support one team called Sydney. Right? Mm. That would have just been unthinkable. But Brisbane people, I think, were ready for that. And so that the Broncos sort of capitalised on the, those changing times and also upon that feeling. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because the Brisbane Rugby League competition had a large and loyal following and a long and proud history to rival the Sydney comp, like you said before, was the idea of entering a Brisbane team into the Sydney competition ever seriously debated? Did some people want to continue to try go it alone or was it just seen as inevitable, you know, if you can't beat them, join them kind of thing? Look, I think the idea that Brisbane could seriously compete with Sydney on its own as a separate competition, I don't think anyone really had any faith in that beyond the the 70s, right? The height of the BRL was probably the late 60s, really. Mm -hmm. So by the time the 80s come around, everyone was like, something's got to happen, right? So combined Brisbane won the Amco, or what might have been called the Panasonic Midweek Cup back then in 1984. So there was this kind of idea that, well, you know, Brisbane has obviously the origin every year. Why can't we have Brisbane playing? Queensland people want to beat New South Wales. 
how much better it would be if we could do it every week. <laughs> so there was clubs in the Brisbane Rugby League competition that wanted to go it alone. Like I think Brothers had designs on entering a team. There was talk, I think, for a little while of like, you know, Ron McAuliffe, the old president of the QRL, he mm. wanted to match up Winner Manley's great team of nineteen eighty four against the premiers of the New South Wales competition. Like there was these kind of like well, how do we do this? Yeah. In the end, I think there was three bids. There was quite a bit of opposition as well. The, the QRL dithered massively over this during the 86, 87. Mm. They really didn't know what to do because politically, I think people knew that if, if some sort of Brisbane team comes in, then the rest of the BRL competition is basically the reserve grade comp. So politically, it's quite difficult to, to do this. So there was, the QRL did not really lead the way on this. Mm. In the end, the, the Broncos bid, which was fronted by four Brisbane businessmen, Barry Maranta, Gary Balkan, Steve Williams, and Porky Morgan. That bid was kind of a surprise, Victor, I think, in many ways. I don't think they even really expected to win it. But what they did is they just said, well, we're just going to do things differently. Barry Maranta always tells the story, one of the founders of the Broncos, of taking a phone call from a Sydney radio station. And they said to, to him, OK, so, you know, are you going to model yourself on the St. George Dragons? Are you going to, who's your sort of, mm. your template? And mm. Barry Maranta said, we're not going to follow any of you guys. We're going to follow the Denver Broncos. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? We're going to, we think Sydney Rugby League is, it's obviously strong, but we think the setup is basically terminal. There's a different way to do this, and it's the American model. So they aggressively pursued this sort of one team, one city franchise kind of model. And they did it brilliantly. Like, mm. wherever you sit on the political spectrum on this, they did it really well, mm. right? And there was a lot of cynicism around the Broncos, and there still is in some quarters, but they totally reimagined the way a football club would operate mm. at that time. Yeah. And, you know, I think really on balance, you'd have to say that the Broncos have been fantastic for Queensland. That doesn't mean that everything they've done has been great, and certainly at the moment it's pretty rubbish. <laughs> but, you know, for me growing up, like I'm 30 so I grew up really in the golden era of the Broncos during the 1990s, and it was just like, you just loved it. You know, you felt part of the reason why I got into rugby league was because I had the Broncos wearing maroon and gold and white mm -hmm. every week beating a Sydney opposition. And then, you know, three times a year I had Queensland to watch, and it was like, it was the way in which I could reconnect with my family and my heritage and my feeling of being a Queenslander. If it wasn't for the Broncos coming in, maybe definitely if it wasn't for the Broncos origin, I don't even know if I would have watched it because I had no interest at all. And I still have really no interest at all in, in Sydney rugby league. Mm. So the Broncos were ambassadors for the sport in many ways. And, and plus you would you have know, had plenty of ammo in the schoolyard every Monday morning with Brisbane winning so much in the nineties. That would have been handy yeah. as well. Yeah. But then this is a thing, right? Cause it's like, I don't know. My schoolyard was soccer. Like, okay. people watch rugby league, but uh, I had, obviously, friends that played. I never played rugby league. Most of my friends played soccer. You know, I grew up in that yeah. era. By the 1990s, Sydney was just a changing place. Right? Well, also, and, the, there's the Super League War in the mid-90s, which I lived through and I saw firsthand course, how that yeah. basically decimated interest in the game in Sydney. And it's only just getting back to those pre-Super League levels that might have played a, a role as well. Absolutely. And see, the Super League War... For me, I can remember it even as a kid, and I was like, this is fine. <laughs> like, we're doing pretty well. Like, the Broncos are, are up high, no worries. I remember my dad wasn't real happy about it. He was like, it kind of feels a bit empty. Yeah. But we were still watching the 1997 Super League Grand Final quite happy, you know. Like, we were... So anyway, going back to the original question, you know, the Broncos, they were just different, right? Yeah. And 
they fit in, I think, really perfectly in many ways to the changing Brisbane. They fit in quite well to the culture of Brisbane just generally at that time. I think Brisbane was prepared to support one team. You know, I often wonder, you look at sliding doors moments, you wonder if in the early 1980s, if, you know, Wynn Manley and Brothers and Redcliffe would have entered the Sydney competition. Mm. You wonder what that would look like now, mm. and I think that's a, it's a fun game to play, yeah. but the well, history happens as it is, and the Broncos, I think, did a great job of bringing Queensland into, eventually became a national competition. Yeah, so like you say, the Broncos are in, they do very well, and it's pretty much the end of the Brisbane Rugby League competition. And like I said before, the book made me confront my unconscious biases, particularly around my Sydney-centric view on the game. It really hit home reading the reaction of many people in Brisbane to South Sydney's exclusion from the NRL competition. Of course, many or most in Sydney were outraged, but people in Brisbane made the valid point that Brisbane Rugby League fans had to endure the loss of all their teams through the demise of um, the Brisbane Rugby League competition. So that's a, another sort of confronting moment for me as I read the book. That's right. There was one in particular, one ex-BRL player who was just mm. like, well, I know how they feel, but no one cared about the fate of Valleys. No one cared about the fate of Brothers. That's right. <laughs> so... So now we get to Super League. So Brisbane Broncos are doing great, and we get to the Super League era. So Super League had Brisbane fingerprints all over it. Joe, in your opinion, what was the number one factor in the Brisbane Broncos slash John Rebo-inspired Super League concept? Was it a genuine want to progress the game? Was it about revenge on the despised Sydney establishment? Or was, was there an element of the Brisbane Broncos believing a bit too much of their own hype after such a successful start to their existence? Uh, look, I think that's probably all of the above. I think there was a genuine feeling, I do believe, that this would grow the game, this Super League concept. Mm-hmm. I mean, people forget, people in Sydney, they like to sort of gnash their teeth over, oh, you know, destroy the Sydney clubs and so forth. But there was conversations around rationalising and amalgamating Sydney clubs long before Super League came mm-hmm. along, right? Mm-hmm. It just was. Like, it was talked about since the sort of probably the late 80s, early 90s, that mm-hmm. there was just too many teams in Sydney, even before that. There was a general understanding that the game was Sydney-centric. They could move towards a national competition. You know, it was the entry of paid television. You look at the English Premier League in the UK, mm. formed in 1992, hitched its wagon to Murdoch's media empire, mm. entered a fabulous new age of wealth and global popularity. There was a sense that rugby league could sort of follow that, and mm. that's what John Rebo was talking about at the time, and everyone laughed at him because it was like, oh, yeah, they're going to play rugby league in China, like pull the other one. But he genuinely thought, I think, that this would grow the game. And many people in Queensland at the time, people like Gordon Tallis, Mal Meninga, they had, I think, several motives for hitching their wagon to Super League. Yeah. But all of them speak about the, the desire to grow the game internationally and the desire to kind of put the game on a more sound footing in Australia, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, especially the professional game, to have stronger teams, not just in Sydney, but throughout the country. So I think there was a genuine desire to grow the game, but you cannot ignore the sense of Queensland grievance that was involved in this, mm-hmm. right? So John Rebo, the mastermind, if you want to call him that, of, of Super League, he felt throughout the 1990s, he was the CEO of the Brisbane Broncos at the time, mm. that the Broncos had been treated like crap. Yeah. And in many cases, they had. You know, They couldn't get a grand final up to Brisbane, even though they had a bigger stadium. Mm-hmm. They had ANZ Stadium out in the southern suburbs, which had 60,000 seats, and it was you know pulling record crowds. They couldn't convince the New South Wales Rugby League to bring a grand final up there. Mm-hmm. They still can't. <laughs> <laughs> but there was that. There was things like they'd done salary cap audits, which I think the Broncos felt were a little bit unfair. Mm-hmm. Even 
even like Alan Lang is tackling. Oh yeah, that, you got to change the rules because Alan Lang is tackling is unfair. Mm. You know, like just little things like that all fed into this notion that New South Wales rugby league are trying to pull the Broncos back into the pack mm-hmm. rather than trying to catch up. And I think there's a lot of valid arguments to that. I really do. Rebo said basically. They're playing politics, the New South Wales Rugby League. We're trying to run a business. We're trying to pull Rugby League ahead here. And New South Wales Rugby League is more concerned with the traditional kind of notions of what Rugby League should have been 50 years ago. And maybe that's harsh, but I think he has a lot of valid points there. So there was this kind of Queensland grievance that had been developed through the 1980s and 1970s through the the Interstate Series and Origin, totally captured by the Broncos week-to-week in the Winfield Cup. Mm -hmm. And then... That definitely played into Super League, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But through this book, I tried to, I guess, do a reading of Super League in a, from a different perspective, from a Queensland perspective. Yeah. But then again, I don't, I don't want to make the argument that Queensland was wholly behind Super League. It was hotly debated in Queensland just as it was in, in New South Wales. Yeah, so that gets my next question. I mean, from a personal point of view, my memory of Super League, I, I just hated its guts so much I obviously I'm a Parramatta yeah. supporter and a loyalist as a kid growing up and I just despise everything that I thought that News Limited and John Rebo were trying to do to the game but yes upon reading your book and of course as the years and decades have gone on uh, you realize it's not that straightforward so as we say the Super League war divided the game and of course divided Queensland and I'm interested in this because like I say my memory is again a Sydney memory and my memory is of division but it's also of a sentiment that lent towards the ARL. After all, most of the clubs that stayed loyal were New South Wales clubs. Do you have a sense of whether the sentiment in Queensland lent one way or another? After all, the Broncos were extremely popular across the state, and unlike in Sydney, the Brisbane press was a news-limited monopoly. Yeah, it still is. I mean, Mm. the influence of News Corp up here is scandalous. It's completely retarded the state in many ways. And But look, at the time, the Broncos and the Cowboys obviously went to Super League. Mm -hmm. The Crushers and the Gold Coast stayed with the ARL. So really, it's split in half Mm. in in terms of the professional team playing at the time. Mm. What I tried to do was show the complexity within this, right? So I looked at the story of Kerry Bosted, who was the founding CEO and really put a lot of his life into setting up the North Queensland Cowboys. And he was an ARL loyalist. Mm. He was a guy that said, you know, the ARL has helped us have a team in the National League in this competition. We can't just stab them in the back three weeks later. We can't just defect to the Super League. So, mm. you know, he spent like five years of his life, right, building the North Queensland Cowboys. Yeah. Then the Cowboys defect to Super League in 1995 and he resigns his position. Like by the time they'd won their first game, he was living in Brisbane, right? He never lived in Brisbane, didn't like Brisbane, but he he just had nothing to do with the club at all. He's now back, which is great. Mm. But see, this is the complexity of it, right? It's it's not just a simple story of, oh, the Cowboys went one way, the Broncos went the other way, the Crushers went this way. Mm. Within there, there's battles going on. Friendships up in Queensland. So Steve Ricketts, the main league writer for the Courier Mail, he was an ARL loyalist, mm. you know, awesome bloke, really great bloke, Steve, and really has a sense of the tradition of rugby league. Mm. But he was working for News Limited, so he was caught in a difficult position. And he was writing columns where he was like, I don't think this is worth it. I don't think this is worth ruining the fabric of the game. Mm. But he's writing for essentially the organ in which is, is doing this. So it's a, there's all these stories, right? One of the stories, Tossa Turner, the yeah. great legendary manager of the Queensland Maroons during the 1980s and early 90s. He was historically the president of the Redcliffe Dolphins. He was a 
ARL man. He, at the time, was involved with the South Queensland crushes mm. and really one of the reasons they stayed with the ARL. Mm. And at the time, you know, he's also studying the former Origin greats at the same time mm-hmm. as this. And naturally, that kind of means he has to hang out and be with John Rebo and be with Gene Miles and be with people that are on probably the other side of the equation. So there was all these difficulties. I looked at the story of Steve McAvoy, who's a great guy from Stanthorpe. He's just a volunteer, like a real, you know, salt of the earth volunteer for both soccer and rugby league in that area of Queensland, right, mm. in, the, in the south east of Queensland. And Steve McAvoy was a Broncos fan, so he was watching Super League. But at the time, the rugby league in that area at the community level was absolutely on its knees. Mm. So he, along with many other people, helped build this new competition in 1996 called the Border League, which included teams from both sides of the Queensland New South Wales border, Tenerfield, Kalani, Inglewood, Stanthorpe. And I look at this story to try and show that, like, here's a Broncos fan mm. that's starting an ARL affiliated competition yeah. and being celebrated by the ARL as a shining light, you know, doing that for the community. And he was kind of split too. So the other thing that people underestimate, and I probably underestimated in my book as well, is that there are a lot of people in Queensland that support Sydney clubs, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They're absolutely Queensland people. They watch State of Origin and they support Queensland, but they also support South Sydney, for example. So there's just like it's a very – it was a very turbulent period. But I get the sense that because of the influence of the Broncos and because of the influence of News Limited and the Courier Mail – that, yes, there was a, a kind of general lean towards the Super League. Mm. In saying that, though, one of Queensland's greatest ever moments came in total opposition to Super League, which is obviously the 1995 yeah. 3-0 series. So, yeah, it's, it's just a very complicated period of time. Well, let's call it a 51-49 victory <laughs> Super League in Queensland. Yeah, Now, sure. the other big Queensland success story of the past 40 years, of course, has been the North Queensland Cowboys. Before we get to the Cowboys, Joe, can you give our listeners, particularly our overseas listeners, an idea of the relationship between North Queensland and the rest of the state? Yeah, okay. So I'm speaking right now from Cairns where I live and... I guess the, probably the best way to describe it is, you know, I think people in Sydney are quite aware of the term Southerners that Queensland used to refer to people from New South Wales. Mm. But if you're in Townsville or Cairns or Mount Isa or, or anywhere in the North Queensland, Southerners can just as equally refer to people from the southeast. Yeah, right. Right. So just as Sydney was to Brisbane or is to Brisbane, Brisbane can be to Townsville. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, and that was true of rugby league as well. So the Brisbane clubs would pull talent out of the Foley Shield and out of the, the regional competitions in the north, mm-hmm. and that often make a two-step jump, first to Brisbane, then to Sydney. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of general feeling of the further north you go, the more resentment there is for people in the south. So there's not necessarily a straightforward relationship between north and south Queensland, you know, the existence of Bob Catter, I think, is a good thing to remember in that Bob Catter is a very, very staunch advocate for the separation of North Queensland and the rest of Queensland. Mm-hmm. So politically, there's always been this kind of separatist movement in the North. Now, I don't want to draw too long a bow here. The North Queensland Cowboys had nothing to do with all this sort of stuff. Mm. But there was a general desire by the nineteen late 1980s for North Queensland to have a presence in the expanded Sydney competition. Mm-hmm. And chiefly because they wanted, like Kerry Bostead, the founding father of the club, he didn't want young kids to have to move south 
to pursue a football career. So when he was a kid, Kerry Bosted played for Australia. He got picked for Australia, I think it was 1978, from Innisfail, which mm. is a little sugar town in North Queensland, right? So he got picked from the country and played for Australia. Then I think in 19, it might have been 1977 he debuted for Australia, and then in 1978 he moved to Sydney. Mm-hmm. And he was like, that was really hard. <laughs> like it was good in, in many ways, but also hard because you're moving away from your family and your friends and your community. And so Kerry Bosted's his desire was always to build a club that would allow future generations of North Queenslanders to remain in North Queensland and play in the top level of football. And that's come to be fantastically well. And in the book, I sort of talk about Matthew Bowen. Like, Matty Bowen is just the absolute poster boy of that, right? Because yeah. Matty Bowen, so sh- he was so shy. You know, he was from a little Aboriginal community in Cape. I'm not saying he couldn't have done it, but it was certainly, I think, a lot easier for Matty Bowen to start playing for the North Queensland Cowboys than it would have been mm. for him to start playing for South Sydney, right? On the basis that his parents would come and watch him every week. You know, he wasn't too far removed from his family. He'd gone to school in England in one of the colleges there, he could remain in his community and still reach the top level. Yeah. Previous generations of North Queenslanders, and I've, I've outlined a couple of them in the book, you know, in the 1980s, they were certainly good enough to play in Sydney mm-hmm. or in Brisbane, but they just didn't want to leave home. Like, they, they liked the North. Mm. So they never got known to the Sydney and even to the Brisbane rugby league community. And further they to that, North, Joe. North Queensland legends. Yeah, you know? and, and further to that, Joe, it seems to me that you say in the book that the turning point for North Queensland Cowboys was to have the self-confidence to invest in their own. And, and like you say, Matt Bowen is the poster child of that. And once they had the self-confidence to do that, a success yeah. came. Kerry Bosted had that vision in 1995 of that was what the Cowboys would be. And he's told me on more than one occasion, he's like, I never thought the Cowboys were going to win a premiership. It just wasn't really part of my thinking. The only reason that they existed was to give us a presence so that we could develop and maintain our own sort of identity and our own juniors and our own kids. Mm-hmm. We weren't thinking about winning the NRL when we were developing the bid yeah. way back in the 90s, right? So that really, because of the Super League saga and the Cowboys defected the Super League, they kind of lost their way in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And pretty much by the turn of the century, they were pretty close to folding entirely. Mm. And there was a time there where people just thought the Cowboys were going to you know, become defunct. They recovered, yeah, thanks in large part to a lot of people from New South Wales. I don't want to kind of yeah, yeah. completely, it's not just a North Queensland story. But between 2001 and 2005, the Cowboys basically went from a near-death experience to a grand final appearance. Mm-hmm. And in that time... They recruited and repatriated players from like North Queenslanders who were actually playing down south. So mm-hmm. people like Matt Singh, Kevin Campion, Travis Norton, they brought them back home mm-hmm. to play for the Cowboys. And as well, they discovered local players, people mm-hmm. like Josh Hannay, Matty Bowen, as I've talked about, Ty Williams, Matt Scott, Gavin Cooper. So they started to develop this really local flavour and I think people in North Queensland really responded to that. I mean, they responded mostly to the fact that they started winning. Like it's not, it that's the same every sporting club. But I think there was a sense that it's nice to also watch a kid from Serena or mm. Maranba or Mount Isa or Innisfail or Tully play yeah. for 
this club, not just, you know, these guys that have sort of been sequestered up here mm. and don't really fit into the place. And, you know, Peter Parr talks about the fact that when they signed Jonathan Thurston, I think it was in late 2004 for the 2005 season. By that point, by 2004, they had a team to sell JT, a, a salary package which was attractive to him, but they also had a team. Mm-hmm. They said to him, we can actually offer you a decent side. And yeah. JT said, yeah, I'd love to play next to Matty Bowen. I'd mm-hmm. love to play next to Matt Singh. I'd love to play next to those guys. This sense of developing your own talent not only gave them a really strong identity for the 2000s, which set them up for the grand final victory eventually, but it also brought players to the region too. Now JT has genuinely become a North Queenslander, absolutely. Yeah. Now, before we get off the Cowboys, uh, one of the best things about rugby league over the past 10 years or so has been the incredible rivalry between the Broncos and the North Queensland Cowboys. Not only did they provide us an unbelievable years-long run of jaw-dropping matches highlighted by the 2015 Grand Final, but the games were played in the best possible spirit. No matter the stakes, there was huge respect between the two clubs on and off the field, but it wasn't always that way. Kerry Bosted, like you mentioned, was a major driving force in getting the Cowboys into the ARL competition. Can you sort of give us that anecdote that you describe in the book of what he was up against to get this off the ground? Yeah, so Kerry Bosted was of the view that basically the Broncos really wanted the whole state for themselves and they didn't really see the possibility of the Cowboys. I think Barry Maranta would dispute that. Mm-hmm. I think that's not necessarily a settled discussion, but certainly Kerry Boasted was saying, you know, like you'd walk into restaurants and you'd see the, the Broncos directors and then say, oh, what are you doing? You know, there's no chance. <laughs> His view was, and, and Kerry Boasted's a, a really a classic North Queenslander in that he's like, man, I, I don't like Brisbane just as much as I don't like Sydney. I'm a North Queenslander through and through. Mm. And anyway, so he takes the view that he didn't think that they were particularly supportive of, he didn't think the QRL as well, which is you know obviously Brisbane-based, the main you know administrators, particularly supportive of the Cowboys' bid. But you know he's up against some other challenges, which is like how do you actually create a team called the North Queensland Cowboys? Right, like North Queensland is massive, <laughs> yes. it's huge, it's as big as some countries, and it's coming off the back of remember the Foley Shield competition which was a town-versus-town tournament Mm. where Mount Isa would play Mackay and Mackay would play Cairns and all the different towns had their team. So there was rivalries between those towns politically and through football. And so the North Queensland Cowboys had to kind of develop this sense of North Queensland identity. So you had this this real challenge. And Townsville and Cairns have always had a, a regional rivalry. You know, Cairns got the international airport first. Townsville's kind of considered the capital of North Queensland. Mm. So there was rivalries between the, the towns and the, and the regions up here. So he had this massive task, right? And he had no real cash behind him either. It wasn't like they had big bucks up here at the time. Mm. But, you know, what he did have, I think, was a good relationship with John Quayle and Ken Arthurston. He played for Sydney clubs and he had a relationship with them. And I think, to their credit, those guys probably took the punt and and saw the vision that he sold them and and really got on board with Mm. that. So, yeah, Kerry was... I don't don't think enough is said about Kerry Boasted, to be honest. Mm. I think he's uh, not forgotten, but, like, he's, you know, the first ever try scorer for Queensland and State of Origin. Mm. He's one of the last guys to be picked straight out of the country for Australia. He's an absolute colossus in the history of the game up here. Yeah, well, you've you've righted that wrong somewhat in the book, that's for sure. Now, Joe, one of the central themes of the book is how Rugby League explains, quote, Queensland's reckoning with race and reconciliation. There is probably no issue that better highlights the contradictions of Queensland. No part of Australia can hold its head high on the treatment of Indigenous Australians over the last 230 years. Of course, Queensland is part of that story, and it's a confronting chapter. The historian Henry Reynolds describes Queensland as the scene of the most intense and enduring frontier conflict and a site of vast brutality and mass killing. So 
from first contact, it was a, a fraught relationship. And like the rest of the country, the experiences at the frontier have permeated through the generations and are still absolutely relevant today. Then you have a roll call of reactionary politicians led by Pauline Hanson, who aren't afraid to use race to gain cheap votes. On the other side of the coin, though, Queensland is the state that has promoted Indigenous Australians through sport, specifically rugby league, better than anyone and certainly better than New South Wales. Indigenous players haven't just been bit part players or flashy game breakers. They've been actively promoted to leadership roles and have excelled. The Queensland Origin team was at least, I reckon, 25% Indigenous throughout its record-breaking run. And in 2015, when the Cowboys and the Broncos met in the grand final, both captains Justin Hodges and Jonathan Thurston were Indigenous. How do you reconcile this seeming contradiction of Queensland's problematic history with Indigenous relations with what we've seen on the rugby league field, where Queensland have been better than anyone at providing the right environment for Indigenous Australians to succeed? Yeah, okay. Well, look, I'm not one of those sports writers who gets too excited about the communion of black and white players on the field and the sense that, oh, that literally is reconciliation Mm. because there's black players on the field. That's a stretch, I think. The material conditions for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and for descendants of South Sea Islanders in Queensland has not changed because, you know, Mal Meninga kicked some goals and Artie Beetson was a a legend and Mm -hmm. Jonathan Thurston and Justin Hodges captained those two teams. Like, Mm -hmm. the material conditions do not change at all. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there is kind of like this... um, conscious like anti-racism among Queensland selectors that have picked Aboriginal players. Mm. I think Gene Miles put it pretty well, the chief of Queensland selectors, he told me, he's like, you know, we had to pick and stick. We don't have many players in the competition. Mm. Like, we don't have the luxury of seven or eight different five-eights to pick from. We've got a number of eligible players in each position throughout the competition. New South Wales is a hell of a lot more. And so we have to just pick and stick with those people. You know, I've looked at moments in the book like Justin Hodges's calamitous debut. I think it was in 2002, right? Mm-hmm. Like just the worst debut you could possibly imagine ever in any sport, anywhere. Like it's just shocking, right? Mm-hmm. That guy became and is a Queensland legend, right? Like he's now one of the assistant coaches and he just continued on. Whereas you've got guys like David Peachy, who played, you know, one game for New South Wales, I never picked again. Mm. But I don't really want to go into the Anthony Mundine because I think he has some pretty hot talent ahead of him. Mm. But, yeah, Nathan Blacklock, the absolute, yeah. like, that's the most scandalous omission. Mm-hmm. There was this, this kind of overlooking of Indigenous players in New South Wales where there wasn't the same in Queensland. I think that's partly just to do with more structural reasons than cultural reasons, mm. just less players to pick from. You kind of can't let those biases come into it. You've got to pick and stick. But... To go back to your original point about how do you reconcile these these kind of two things, I think what the Maroons have become in the process of having all of these Indigenous and South Sea Islander players coming through and playing for the Maroons, I think what it's become is a symbol. It's a symbol of Queenslanders working together. And that's very simple, but it's very powerful as well. And there's just there's so many moments in Queensland over the last 40 years where there's like these magical moments for Queensland Rugby League and almost all of them, there's like a black fella in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it's like, that's a really big thing. So look at the first State of Origin game in 1980. That's all about Artie Beetson, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's all about him running onto the field in the Queensland jumper. Steve Renoff scoring that famous grand, one of the best grand final tries ever, mm. you know, for the Broncos, 1982. Yeah. Gordon Tallis's tackle on Brett Hodgson in 2002, you know, that tackle, another mm. Indigenous guy. You've got, as you mentioned, JT and Justin Hodges 
as the two captains for the Brisbane Broncos mm. in, in 2015 and, and the Cowboys. So you've got all these moments where when there's something big that happens in Queensland, black and white tend to cooperate, mm-hmm. right, on the rugby league field. And like, that is in itself, it's something. It's not necessarily going to change material conditions, but it's better than nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I've sort of argued in my book, it's better than nothing. <laughs> and it's a good start. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think there's a hell of a lot way to go politically, socially, and mm. economically, for sure. But there is a sense that, you know, you talk to some guys up here, like they can be quite despairing of Queensland as a uh, – Indigenous guys are quite despairing of Queensland as a place. And mm. yet when it comes to rugby league, they're totally signed up, mm. right? So, you know, I talk to some pretty staunch Aboriginal activists and, and professionals up here, you know, people like Professor Grayson Smallwood and Dr. Mark Wenatong, Chris Sara, who's on the was on the Rugby League Commission, you know, staunch political people who mm. in many ways would despair at Queensland race relations. Mm. But those guys are just as signed up to the Maroons and to the Broncos and to the Cowboys and to the various institutions of Rugby League as their white counterparts. Mm. And I think Sometimes you can't say the same in New South Wales. Yeah. I think there's a bit of a disjuncture there. So it doesn't fix anything, but it's a beautiful symbol. And Queensland has always elevated Indigenous and South Sea Islander talent to leadership positions. It's mm. not tokenistic. Mm. It's very genuinely leadership positions. The Indigenous All-Stars, you know, that mm. came out of Queensland. Yes, mm. it was Preston Campbell, but it came out of the Gold Coast. It came mm. out of Queensland. And remember that first try that was scored by, by Wendell Saylor? Mm. You know, it started with JT... Move the ball to his right to Scott Prince, another Queenslander. Mm-hmm. Key kicks, and then Wendell Saylor, another Queenslander from Serena in the north. He goes over, does the shake a leg, didgeridoo mm. celebration with JT. You know, it's like yeah, seminal moment. The start of the All Stars, it was like, and that's changing now. But at the start of the All Stars, it was very much the Murrays, not the Currys, mm. that were dominating those squads. So and for our overseas listeners, that's the, the name for the Queensland Indigenous population. Is that accurate? That's Basically correct. Yeah. Even more complicated. Yeah, yeah, no worries. I think Preston Campbell in your book probably puts it best. He says, it's great to be able to get together over a game that we all love and at the same time, without even knowing it, get along with each other. It's a small but productive way of reconciliation. And I suppose the issue of reconciliation with Indigenous Australians is, like you're sort of alluding to, it's long been a tough nut to crack for Australians, Australian politicians. In fact, it's either been put in the too hard basket or actively undermined. You look at the Uluru Statement from the Heart, But Rugby League in Queensland, I suppose, has shown what can happen when you give Indigenous Australians the same opportunities, encouragement and the support available to anyone else. And surprise, surprise, they excel just like anyone else can in those circumstances. So, yeah, like Preston Campbell alludes to, like your book alludes to, it's a good example of, but small example of practical reconciliation in, in action. And I suppose another example of how the community and in this case, the Queensland Rugby League community is way ahead of the uh, political class, too. I think so. And look, you know, the Uluru Statement from the Heart was, you know, in part written and read out by Professor Megan Davis. Mm. And she's obviously on the Rugby League Commission now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's a very staunch Queenslander. Yep. So I think a lot of good's coming out of Queensland from that. It's perhaps a funny thing to think about that Queensland is a force for good in race relations because certainly we've produced the absolute degenerates and misfits in in many ways in the political class. Mm. You know, Clive Palmer, Peter Dutton, Pauline Hanson, it just goes on and on. Mm. But with rugby league, I think a lot of good comes out of Queensland, that's for sure. Well, Arthur Beetson's also an interesting character in the book. Obviously, a a bona fide legend, the first Indigenous captain of any Australian national sporting team, a Queensland hero. How does his story and his relationship with his own indigeneity reflect the journey Indigenous Australians have been on over the last 40 years when it comes to how they perceive themselves? Mm-hmm. 
that's an interesting question. So, yeah, so Artie, obviously, yeah, the first Indigenous captain of the Kangaroos, first captain of the Queensland State of Origin side. Artie wasn't an activist in the kind of tradition of black activist athlete. He, mm. he certainly wasn't that kind of guy. And I've sort of written about some moments in, in Queensland history where Artie has perhaps shied away from political issues, mm-hmm. but he was respected across racial lines, across state borders, massive in England, like just an absolute colossus of rugby league. Mm. And I think with Artie, Roy Masters talks about the fact that he used to refer to himself as an Australian first, a Queenslander second, and an Aboriginal third. Mm. But then Roy Masters also said, look, in later in life, he kind of reversed the order. Mm. He reversed the order of that. So I think he grew ever closer to his community later in life. But I think the thing with Artie as well is that he didn't just support like the Murray Carnival or the Outback and Indigenous Rugby League Carnivals. He just supported junior football in general, mm-hmm. right? Just it wasn't necessarily about just supporting the Indigenous communities. It was about supporting it all grassroots and bush communities because he was from the bush himself Mm. but yeah he certainly had a a really interesting role in you know most you know everyone everyone in queensland loves Artie Beats. you cannot find someone who will speak a bad word about him right it's just not doesn't happen Mm. so he has this um yeah i I wonder about the influence of Artie, the fact that he was the first captain and the fact that he had this huge presence Mm. it's like later on as queensland goes through the the late 1990s when it was like really viciously you know one nation supporting through those moments you can't really kind of express that through rugby league because it's like you're kind of denying your own history like Mm -hmm. how do you exclude aboriginal players from the queensland side for example you just couldn't do it Mm. you could not make that argument because so deep in the fabric of of that Queensland origin Mm. history and experience is guys like Artie Beats and so yeah he's played a really interesting role Artie and I think he's a fascinating character I um and of course he looms large in the book he does yeah and I think what's interesting for me is that his kind of change late in his life as you say Roy Masters mentioned that he's he became much closer to his indigeneity towards the end of his life it's in parallel with the way indigenous australians and indigenous rugby league players have embraced their indigenous culture and that wasn't necessarily the case in past decades where in the past you know indigenous australians might you know hide that fact or just keep it on the download. Yeah. But these days, they're much more likely, you know, following the, as you say in the book, following the apology to the stolen generation in 2008, mm. it's really brought on a, a new sense of uh, pride. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm hesitant to sort of speak upon Artie's relationship with his heritage sure. too much because it's such a personal thing and it's really not, you know, it's just difficult to sort of say definitively it's not, it's sort of not my place to sort of talk about that. But... Yeah. Yeah, your general point does stand that there was an absolute flowering of like indigenous consciousness, indigenous presence in rugby league mm. this century in post two thousands, mm. right? And and Artie certainly was part of that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what's happening now. You know, like rugby league is definitely on the cutting edge when it comes to race relations in in this country. I, I believe like mm. it absolutely is leading the way both in numbers. I think I wrote an article a while back where I talked to a uh, covered a stat where it's like 19% of all registered rugby league players across all levels are Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander, wow. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. So it's like that's massive. One mm. in five registered rugby league players across the game, mm. not just the professional game, is Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. That's, that's quite an amazing stat. And for our um, international also, audience, to put that in perspective, I think the proportion of Indigenous population in the whole country is about 3 or 4%. So, yeah. 
It's tiny, yeah. And that's the thing, like, and there's other guys as well who are really interesting in this journey, like guys like Mal Meninga. You know, so when there was the national anthem protests last year, Mal Meninga, the Kangaroos coach, actually backs it and says, maybe we should have a conversation about changing the national anthem. Mm. And it's just like, what? Like, <laughs> you cannot imagine the Mal Meninga of the 1980s or 90s kind of saying yeah. those sorts of things. You just cannot imagine. That's not a slight on Mal, mm. but like, that is unthinkable for a national coach of any other sport. It's absolutely unthinkable in the kind of power structure of the AFL. Mm. So really, yeah, rugby league's doing some, I think it's, it's quite amazing the kind of the way in which it's operating in this space. And yeah, guys like Mal, you know, like Mal's an interesting character. Like he, in the 90s, was asked about the racism directed towards the AFL players and the Indigenous AFL players. Mm. He was asked this at a press gallery for the launch of his book and he listed the recording. He says, oh, look, it's all just water off the ducks back to me and I sort of don't think about it too much and what happens on the field stays on the field. That was his view in 1995. And that's totally different to what his view is now. Like Mal is... You know, when Greg Inglis was racially abused or anyone's racially mm. abused in, in the NRL, Mal's one of the first people that comes out all just absolutely all guns blazing, mm. saying this is wrong, there's no place for it. So I think there's a number of people from Queensland and Indigenous South Sea Island or Torres Strait Islander guys from Queensland that have kind of gone on this journey, I suppose. Mm. And I don't know if I can really account for why that is, but it's a, it certainly is an interesting development to happen and an absolutely a positive thing, for sure. Yeah, and, and of course, also reflective of society more broadly. Now, Joe, I know I'm taking up a lot of your time, but I also wanted to ask you about Peter Jackson. You also thread the, the heartbreaking oh, yeah. story of Peter Jackson through the book. A classy 5'8 in the centre, the life of the party, played for Queensland and Australia, a, a great media talent too. Why did you want to focus on Peter's story in your book? Well, yeah, like as a storyteller, you sort of look for new ways into things. And so I was sort of looking at the Super League period and the Super League war and thinking, what's another way into this? And one of the ways in was just looking at it from a Queensland perspective. But then I sort of looked at Peter Jackson's career and his, his life during this period. And he was a guy that, you know, he finished his career with Norths in 1993. He mm. played for the Broncos. He played for the Canberra Raiders. So he played in sort of two expansion clubs and then a traditional club. Mm. He then, when the Super League war, he, hit, he went and worked with Foxtel. He wrote for the Super League magazine. Mm. He worked for the Bulldogs. So he was, and then he worked as an assistant coach to Queensland in the Tri-Series, the Super League Tri-Series. Mm. So he was sort of on the, I guess you put him on the side of, of the Super League. Mm. But... Even within writing for the Super League magazine, he was writing about the need to unify the game. And he was mm. like, we can't lose the traditions. We can't lose. So you could see how torn he was over mm. the direction that the game was heading. So I kind of thought he was an interesting character. And, you know, like we talk about, for example, Billy Moore's famous Queenslander call in 1995, right? Well, Billy Moore tells the story of how it was Jacko who sort of taught him what that call meant because mm. Jacko was his roommate when he made his debut in 1992. This is, right. this is Billy Moore. Mm. So, so Jacko is deeply connected to this sort of period between 1993 and 1997 mm. when rugby league was going through this really dark place. And I guess it's just a, it's a tragic story because then he ends up passing away in late 1997, mm. you know, with, with a young family and still a lot, a lot of life to live. And he never sees the reunification of the game. I don't mm. want to trivialise, you know, his life. I mean, that's probably the least of the mm. concerns of his family. But, but it was a, a big part of Jacko's life. And mm. it, the writing that I've uncovered from that period of by Jacko shows that he was concerned about the future of the game. Mm. And I just think it was a kind of sad and poignant end to that Super League saga in that Jacko, who was sort of stuck in the middle from mm. the two sides, just 
never saw the game reunify. Mm. He was someone who had deep connections to both Norths, which was definitely a victim of the Super League war, mm. and then again to the Broncos, which was definitely a victor of the Super League war. Yeah. He was a guy, and, and to the Raiders as well, he was a guy that had friends across everywhere, right? Up north, he married a, a woman from Innisfail, Siobhan, who, who still lives in Innisfail. You know, like he, he had just this kind of larger-than-life personality. He had friends everywhere, and he was... Yeah, there was a quote from one of one journalist at the time when he passed away. He said, you know, during this Super League war, he was the guy that remained everyone's mate. So it was just, I thought it was worthwhile remembering someone like Jacko through the course of this book because these are the sort of books that there's not going to be a thousand different versions of Queensland mm. history, right, in, written in book form. So I was like, I probably should, he hasn't really been written about at this length before, so I'm going to thread his story through this. Mm. And, and hopefully I've done it justice. I think Siobhan was... His wife, Widow, was reasonably happy with the account. So it is a very sad ending to that Super League period. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible timing, you know, all up really because he also retired just before the Super League war and didn't get the the big paychecks that all his mates were getting as well. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that played a part in in the spiral downward, but, yeah, it wouldn't have been easy. Hard to say. I I don't know, to be honest. I think you'd have to ask people closer to him. There's still a lot of people like, you know, Kevin Walters. I mean, Kevin Walters is a very emotional guy and he's mm. gone through a hell of a lot in his life. But I remember interviewing him and I sort of asked him about Jacko and he, you know, he, was, he, he sort of started tearing up and I was like, mm. holy shit. You know, he's still very, he meant a lot to a lot of people, yeah. I think. And hopefully I've expressed some of that through the book. Absolutely. Righto, Joe, taking up a lot of your time. Thank you so much for chatting to me and chatting to the listeners about a superb book. Congratulations again on a fine read and and on covering so much terrain so succinctly. So, Joe Gorman, thanks so much for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks for having me. Progressive Rugby League. So there you go. What a super book. Thanks, Joe. Never too old to learn, never too proud to learn, never too Sydney to Queensland. Okay, folks, thanks again for joining us. Thanks again for spreading the word. You can contact the show on Twitter or at progressiverl at outlook.com. Until we next meet, Rugby League homing, and see ya.